Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, Managing Editor for Crosscut, and today we're talking about schools. More specifically, we're talking about Seattle schools and, of course, whether and how they'll bring students and teachers back almost a year after sending them on a kind of crash course in remote learning, I guess. For this conversation, we went right to the source, Superintendent Denise Juneau who has been running the district for almost three years now and who will be leaving her post this summer. Normally, that would be the headline news, but just a reminder, nothing is normal anymore. Last week, as teachers were locked in negotiations with the district and many parents were searching for answers, Juno sat down with Monica Guzman for the latest in CrossCut's Northwest Newsmakers series. Monica, who hosts the monthly live events series, is one of those parents. And getting to ask the superintendent her questions directly is, I guess, one of the perks of the job. So I've got Monica here right now. Hey, Monica. Hey, hey, how's it going? Good. Um, Okay, before we listen to this conversation, I wanted to ask you what you were hoping to get out of this interview. Yeah, I'll say the number one thing for me was candor. Denise Juneau has been with the district for almost three years, as you said. She's leaving in June. So can we learn something from our outgoing superintendent about a district that struggles even when there isn't a big global crisis going on, even when a pandemic doesn't disrupt everything we're doing? So my number one hope was we're going to talk about the pandemic. We're going to talk about the struggles. We're going to talk about her struggles getting things done. And hopefully we're going to actually hear some straight talk about it. So, Monica, you had some questions about equity as well, right? Yes. Equity was and is and remains an extremely important issue for this district and many districts. Seattle's schools are segregated in a lot of ways. We see outcomes that are so different all over the city, all of which is exacerbated by the pandemic. And Denise Juneau came in with a lot of high expectations on what she could accomplish on equity for this district. And I asked her pretty direct questions about the pretty direct criticism she's gotten on those issues from the NAACP here locally, many others. And it did figure into her decision not to seek to continue her contract and to the lack of support in some corners of the city. It's a very, very difficult set of issues to untangle and hopefully one of the many places we can learn. Hmm. All right. So we also had some questions from the audience, right? What what kind of things did they want to know from the superintendent? Well, they were very focused on the COVID reopening. So the district announced that they want the youngest students, preschool through first grade, plus special ed students, to come back in March. Now, the teachers union is negotiating a lot of details from the staffing side on all of that. So there's still plenty of uncertainty. And on top of all that... The district's been criticized for not being as transparent as a lot of parents would have liked and a lot of others would have liked. So there has been, again, loads of uncertainty about one of those things that, hey, families all over Seattle and all over the country and all over the world could take for granted for so long. My kid is going to be in school. I'm going to be able to do these things. They're going to be able to learn in these ways. All of that got blown up and parents wanted answers. They want answers about Hey, I got older kids than those uh, young age groups. So 
When are they going to come back? And, you know, the district has some answers, but maybe not, not as many as we'd like. Hmm. Okay, so what was your takeaway from this conversation? Well, she certainly was candid. In fact, in, in a couple of surprising places where I asked questions thinking, all right, we, we got we to ask this. I'm, I'm a mom of two kids. I got to ask this. And I expected her to not dodge, but, you know, maybe not dwell, not be terribly specific. Mm. And she would come right out. So stay tuned for those because th- those were interesting moments for sure. She was also candid about the challenges of leading this district, the, the way that the district makes decisions, the relationship with the Seattle School Board, which is a whole thing. Um, mm. You know, we, we get to those tough topics and she didn't shy away. Uh, and, and, you know, maybe it's just the fact that, well, she's been she's been doing this for a while and she was ready for it just just to level with us in some ways. But again, uh, you know, parents listening will also find themselves dissatisfied uh, in some spots as well. But I think hmm. that the overall takeaway for me is there are lessons here. There are lessons from Denise Juno's experience as a superintendent who was hired to come in and solve some big problems, got her start, you know, tried, certainly had some intentions, and then boom, here comes this big crisis. And so you hear her talking about uh, some of the, some of the frustrations, and I think it gives a more nuanced look to any observer from any of the many stakeholder positions you may hold in and around Seattle to say, oh yeah, this is complicated. <laughs> this has hmm. been really complicated. So hopefully there are lessons here for a next superintendent and for the future of our schools. All right. Monica, thanks for sharing some of the thinking behind the conversations, and uh, good luck with your young scholars there. (laughs) Will do. Thanks, Mark. All right. We hope you all enjoy the conversation and maybe get a few of your questions answered. As always, you can reach us at talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. So, Superintendent Juno, let's start with the pandemic. We're about a year into this awful mess, and a fraction of King County is vaccinated at this point. Mm-hmm. When you're bringing students back, what safety measures are you putting in place, and why do you believe they're enough? Well, you know, we actually, if you think back, almost it's been almost a year since we've had the shift to remote learning. We were the first district in the country, really, at least a large district, to have to make that shift back in March of last year. Um, and so, you know, we've learned a lot since since we've had to do that. Um, and uh, right now, you know, we have different phases of our return to school. We've been in this remote setting now, as I said, for quite a while. We're now looking at a phased-in approach for bringing in special education students in, in uh, intensive pathways is what we call it, those that need to have in-person instruction along with our pre-K one students. You know, then we have a third phase, which would include our second through 12 students. And then the fourth phase would be um, coming back, everybody all, you know, the usual way we think about school. And so transitioning into this next phase, really, we've been planning this for really a long time. And I know a lot of people write to us and say, where's the plan, what's the plan? We have been planning this really since the day that we had to close our doors. We've brought together engagement teams made up of our SEA leaders, our principal leaders, um, 
and parents and students always try to include students in all the decision-making bodies that we have. Um, in June, we had an engagement team that came together made up of that same type of group of people that really walked through and, and helped us sort of categorize who are, should we prioritize? And in that meeting, it was these special education students and um, our pre-K one students. And so we've been working on that plan since then. A lot of moving pieces, um, you know, but we have, and, and people can go to our website and find this in-person sort of plan that we have put together. We just, you know, the big part of co course is negotiating with our labor partners, the Seattle Education Association. And that's work, going on right now, right? It's ongoing. It's happening right now. Every Tuesday and Thursday, bargaining teams are coming together to really talk through this change in working conditions. And that really means shifting from remote to in-person. And what will that take? Our priority has always been safety and following the health guidance of our public health partners. So and what would you say are sort of maybe like the two or three top yeah. line safety measures that... Yeah, so we are in our 73 elementary and pre-K uh, eight schools right now preparing them. So that means setting up desks and tables that are six feet apart, mm -hmm. putting plexiglass in places that like at the front office making sure that we have the PPE required. And so the things that we are committed to is making sure that PPE is there. We have the daily attestation, which really is just a check-in. Is our people feeling, you know, mm -hmm. well enough to come to school? So that's in place. We have an isolation area. If people start feeling sick, that will be monitored. We have separated. So the model that we want to put in place right now would sort of be a Monday, Tuesday, and then a break on Wednesday, not a break, but a not a in person break. A break. And then a Thursday, Friday cohort. And that would be at ratios of one teacher per 15 students. That cohort would stay together all the time. Like there would be no mingling with other classes. They'll eat in their classroom. They'll go to recess together. Mm -hmm. We worked with architects to create cohort zones within our schools so that there won't be any crossing. Um, we are following the guidance of cleaning high touch areas three times a day. So, you know, working really hard to make sure that we are putting all the proper protocols in place. And in fact, we have had 50 childcare sites in our schools that have been happening for months now. And we have 46 of our school sites that are off, actually offering special education services right now all practicing the protocols, all following the processes, and have been pretty successful in monitoring and mitigating any kind of virus spread. So it's great to see that we can be in places and, and it's working. And so I'm excited to get kids back to school. Cool. So let's talk about the teachers. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're concerned for their safety. Are you mm -hmm. confident the plan you have in place is safe for them? And what are you hearing from the teachers about it since it's it's ongoing, the negotiations, and everyone's sort of waiting to see? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really what is being discussed at the at the table right now, at the negotiating table, is what are, like, what, what I just lined out, you know, that's what we are committed to put in place. We've um, actually, cert we've done all of our, we've looked at all of our HVAC systems and where they weren't up to par, we are outfitting them, all of them with hospital grade HVAC filters. So the filtration of air in our schools will be great, like hospital, like a hospital would. And in those places that do not, that can't handle that right now, we will, we are committed to put in 
sort of um, the standalone filtration systems. And so working out issues like that with our labor partners so they know that we are committed to their health and safety when they return to school and want to put all the processes and procedures in there so that they feel safe um, in, in the spaces where they need to receive students. Mm -hmm. So I know this decision was obviously a difficult one to make. You talked about some of the process. What what do you think was the biggest factor in the decision to bring the youngest students back in March? And then I have to ask as a parent, how many families have opted in? Um, families yeah. have the choice to stay home or not, to, to have their kids stay home or not. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so we surveyed our families and about 46% um, opted for an in-person return. Okay. We still have some that we are reaching out to um, that did not answer the survey, but we are committed also to make sure that we're contacting every family and to see what their preference is. And so, you know, and we are also surveyed staff and those staff that need accommodations, health accommodations to stay home. We're trying to make sure that we're adhering to that too. And I think that's important to understand is that we have a certain number of staff that can come back, right? And we have a certain number of students and families who want to return. And that matching has to coordinate with the physical distancing that's required in schools. And so it really is a lot of configuration. Um, and we also heard back from families that they want to keep their teacher that their student has grown accustomed oh, yeah. <laughs> So. That, that was why we shifted from, we were looking at a, maybe a four day, everybody coming back to school that wanted to come back to school and then shifting back to the cohort model of AABB days, because that allows us at least to offer more of that. So more students could stay with the teacher that they've grown accustomed to over this last year. Won't be true in every case, but for the most part, we'll be able to accommodate um, that with this model. Mm -hmm. Shifting to the pandemic itself, I'm going to do this fun arm wavy thing and it's March 2020, mm -hmm. yay, and everyone gets a do-over. It's day one, schools close because of the virus. You're trying to lead a district with 54,000 students going through absolute chaos. Knowing what you know now, what would you have done differently? You know, I, I think Prior to that, if we would have had the magic ball, right? Mm -hmm. when, um, coming into this district, and especially since it's such a high-tech area, it was a little shocking about actually how far Seattle Public Schools was behind mm -hmm. in tech distribution. They had a plan um, really to make sure that we were uh, had a device in every individual student's hand over time. Um, the, it was for three years, and, and at that moment, at that closure, it really was when we had to shift to remote and our students did not have the devices that were necessary. Um, if I had a wish, it would have been that that would have been prior to that point in time because it's impossible to access learning if you did not have that device at that time. Right. One thing I think that was really promising was how the community stepped up to assist us. For one thing I'll say, our Department of um, Technology did a heroic job and they took that three-year plan mm -hmm. and squished it into months mm -hmm. of making sure that every student had a device. And the partnerships that we were able to create, like Amazon stepping up and providing 8,500 laptops to our families that did not have a device, contacting Challenge Seattle and 
Alaska Air stepping up to go to Boston to pick up 12,000 iPads for us and deliver them so our, our youngest learners could have an iPad as we started school this fall. Those things, I think, were really tremendous and, and the partnerships we've been able to develop. And so, you know, getting access to those, we, we have been building good partnerships throughout um, our regular times, but coming into this, I think it really shone through about how people want us to be successful and are willing to step up to do that. And so that was really promising. Um, but the one thing that I think that really became glaringly clear was the lack of devices and internet. I'm still on that of sort of like, we need broadband for all. There is zero reason why a city like Seattle should not have, or families shouldn't have, they should have access to broadband no matter where they are. And I think we're going to have to keep pushing on that issue just simply because, you know, there will be a remote learning something, I think, even upon a full return to school and work from home is going to be a very real thing for a long time. It's so. a great new world. That's yeah. for sure on yeah. all on all those fronts. Yeah. We'll be back with more after this. This last year has changed the way we talk about race, policing, public health, politics, the climate, the arts, and the economy. And in many ways, it's changed how we talk to one another. But it hasn't stopped the conversation. This spring, the Crosscut Festival will keep that conversation going, with a week of events where journalists, politicians, artists, and newsmakers will talk about our uncertain present and our possible future. We'll explore the issues that are shaping our country and our world. This year's guests include PBS NewsHour anchor Judy Woodruff, travel expert Rick Steves, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, former Secretary of Labor Robert Reich, and many more who will be announced on March 8th. Join us at the Crosscut Festival, May 3rd through the 8th. For more information and to purchase tickets, go to crosscut.com slash festival. Okay, back to the show. 16% of Seattle students are in special ed. And mm -hmm. for a lot of them, remote school is almost no school at all. They've really struggled. At the end of October, Seattle was giving one special ed student in-person support. You've said it's increased since. But back then, neighboring districts were able to do more. Now the Department of Education is investigating our special ed services. So help us understand what kept us from reaching these kids sooner in the pandemic and how will the district turn a corner now? Yeah, so I think one thing is that we actually took a different approach than a lot of other districts is we wanted to make sure that our uh, students who have special education, um, individual education plans received um, their education in their home school. Mm. So some districts sort of designated a building and sent students there. We thought it was important to maintain that connection for our students going to places where they were used to, talking to the teacher that um, they knew and loved. Um, and then also our teachers having access to the classrooms that they were in. And so it took a little longer to make those matches and make sure that um, each building had just what we talked about, the necessary PPE and the cleaning protocols. And so it took us a little longer, but we are now, you know, as I said, in 46 schools um, serving students. Um, I believe there's about 144 special education students receiving education in person right now. That will continue to increase as our team continues to identify. And um, when we bring back um, 
special education students in intensive service pathways, you know, they just, they, first there's the federal law, like we have to comply right. with the federal law. And, um, and it's a moral obligation on our behalf as well to make sure that those, um, that the students are, are receiving their education services. What I think what comes out of the special education uh, civil rights letter that we received out of the last administration on the last day of them leaving really was, you know, if you look at the school districts that sort of got targeted with that letter, it was very left-leaning cities. And the letter that we received was based off of one media story that they read. And But one thing I will say is like, we are ready. If they come in, we have, I think, met every, um, Every, every, everything that we need to that's come out of the Office of Superintendent of Public Instruction. So out of the state, you know, those we're ready with the paperwork, we're ready with our process and um, to be under that scrutiny and believe that we will show that we've actually done everything that we needed to do. So do you think the criticism was undeserved? I think in a big way, our process did take longer. And so I know the frustrations, you know, every time that we engage in a longer process, it, it is, it leads to frustration. And so one thing that, you know, he asked me what I wish for, I wish we could have brushed that a little bit more mm -hmm. and put things in place and make sure that we were bringing students in, but we're there now. We have everything in place. We've been following the guidelines and we're ready to receive more students. So one of our readers, Patricia Loera asked a question mm -hmm. that is on the minds of parents everywhere, myself included. She said, how can we best address the learning loss that resulted mm -hmm the pandemic. Now, of course, in that question is the assumption that there's been a learning loss. Mm -hmm. A lot of talk about this being a lost year for, for our kids. Is it? How is the district measuring that possibility? And what are you seeing that's got you most concerned? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, you know, that is the part of the discussion. Like we haven't had our usual ways in education across the country, you know, the standardized test, right, that we all don't think are great measures anyway, but those haven't been in place for two years now, which actually does show you like, do we really need them? What good were they if we don't have that data and we're still operating, things are still moving forward. We are relying a lot on um, classroom assessments. So that relationship between teachers and students and the way that a teacher engages a student and knows they should know where their students are on the content area. And so we'll rely a lot on those classroom assessments, yeah. working with our school building leaders, our principals and assistant principals to figure out as school-based, like how, where are they seeing things that we may need to put in place for interventions come the summer and fall. Last summer, we were able to offer a huge summer school, way more than we ever had, about 15,000 students engaged in our summer school. Usually it's around 2,500. So I think we'll be put, able to put a really strong summer school in place again. But the measurement of, of how, of, we'll have to put something in place for the fall when, when students come back in yeah. so that we can really get where are they on our standards. And we also have a team made up of our SEA educators, some of our uh, principal leaders, and then also here at the district coming together to start thinking through that whole spectrum, right, of, of assessment going from classroom to school to district, how do we know what students are learning and 
then also looking at grading. So they're looking, one thing that this pandemic offered us was the opportunity to really look at those structures of instruction and learning and how we're actually measuring it. And so I'm excited for the work of them coming together. They'll be coming together later this month to really rethink how Seattle Public Schools will um, will look at all those issues. Interesting, okay. Mm -hmm. So even if we bring back our kids now, which is the plan for our youngest students, mm -hmm. um, you know, isn't this in some way still that lost year? And even if it's not a complete loss, I know parents are thinking this, is it worth the risk um, of sending your kids back when it's just a few more months and then it's summer and then we can wait until next year when more people are vaccinated, you know, not even taking any of those chances. How, how yeah. do you think about that? One thing I will say is like, I don't think families can make a wrong choice for themselves, you know, and which is why it was important for us to kind of survey and gauge where they are. You know, some families want their student to be in person and some students need to be in person. Right. I'm learning that's their mode. There are students who thrived in remote learning. And so, you know, I think there was just, there's a space for that in our future as well of, of what does that look like? And as I said, we'll be gauging where our students are on, the, on their learning when we come back. And teachers know, I mean, teachers are doing really a phenomenal job right now. Our educators really stepped up in courageous ways you know, learning an entirely new way of educating through a screen, being in their students' families' homes on a daily basis, um, had to deprivatize their practice in such a way that they never had to do that before. But also like parents now seeing, one, how hard an educator's job is, and also how hard our educators are working. And I, I just think for that part of that, that's actually probably been good for our education system is for there to be that type of connection and a deeper understanding of how everybody sort of works together. So I'm proud of the way that our educators are engaging. And again, I just think that there are students who need that in-person learning. And like I said, when we had that conversation with our with some of our edu educator leaders and our school leaders, they were in agreement that we should begin with our earliest learners. Mm -hmm. So moving on to the transition. One thing I would say, I was just like, you know, you think of kindergarten and they had to engage in this remote way of learning. That's their entry to school, it, yeah. right? That's how they, it's just like, that's how they think of school now. Mm -hmm. And that's their first entry point. And so bringing them in, there's something about coming back to school. I have a friend in Kitsap County and her students just went back to school and just how excited they were as a family, but also as the students going back and just that nervousness of a very first day, it felt like the first day of school for her children. Wow. And so, and, and there's something about, you know, when you're in a school, learning those routines, learning those processes, you know, that's where you get used to the idea of what school is. Of, there's been also, I think, you know, even more than learning loss, if that's what you want to call it, just that lack of social engagement. Just being with um, a human. Yeah. yeah. It's like that probably even more, that's probably something that we should even be thinking about even more of just like, what, how are we going to create those interpersonal relationships? How do we know students' needs, social emotional learning needs are being taken care of? 
What kinds of things can we put in place? And a lot of those things you can't know or understand unless you're in a space in person with a young person to really have those conversations or even, I mean, you and I were talking about even interviews earlier, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's different. It is. And so there's not, there's a lot that you can't read about a situation without being in person. And we're so gonna, I can appreciate a lot of those things we took for granted. That is for sure. Uh, and yeah, we, I just taught a teacher. And so I just visited with a teacher recently and he was able to create an outdoor learning space for some of his, um, for technical education students and how excited he was as an educator to be back in space with his students and the types of projects and just that relationship building I think is just such an important part mm -hmm. of teaching that you know I, I know that on all kinds of areas from families from students to teachers there's a lot of people excited about um, re-engaging and in person but also you know we have to make sure that we're paying attention to the anxiety and the fear that's very real oh, yeah. out there. And how are we making sure that we're mitigating so as I'll, much? I'll stop you right there just because we do need to move on um, to the leadership transition. I want to make mm -hmm. sure we hit some of these topics. When you announced you'd be leaving, you said, this school board must choose a superintendent with whom they can co-lead and move forward together. You're the, the seventh Seattle school superintendent since 2000 and the third in eight years. Seattle has this revolving door with superintendent and it's frankly making everything harder. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this is the case in our district? And what's it gonna take to keep steady leadership here? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess what I, I can speak from my experience is like, you know, I have seven bosses and they're all elected and they have constituents that they answer to as well. Um, they're all very hardworking individuals and you know the relationship between the board and the superintendent has to be a healthy one. And that top leadership team, the board and the superintendent, shouldn't be a distraction to the work. Mm. And Are you it, saying that yours, your relationship with them not quite so healthy? Yeah, I mean, I think there, there was something to the pandemic. And you know, like I said, this whole remote way of having to interact. Mm. Um, you know, new people were elected. They started in January. We weren't able to have the usual mode and space and time to really get to know each other or to build a relationship. We were thrown into a pandemic where we had to make huge shifts. Um, and, and there's that all that heightened anxiety around everything and an urgency to move forward. And you know everything all of a sudden fits in the urgent and important box. And so the prioritization um, between the operation of a district and where, you know, constituents want to go. Sometimes there's a clash, and and you can't. My former deputy superintendent used to tell me, "We can do anything, but we can't do everything." Right, and so there's like the pandemic sort of throw, throw, threw us into a place where everything became important, mm -hmm. and so I don't think that we were able to build relationships in the way that we would have had we been able to really have in-person conversations, in-person meetings, like our meetings are all remote now. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's been a struggle, I think, as far as the top leadership. And when you have a top, the top leadership really has to contribute to a culture of collaboration to improve outcomes for students. And like I said, because of that pandemic, we weren't able to really build that great working relationship because everything shifts 
under our feet constantly. There's so much uncertainty that we deal with on a daily basis. And it's not easy to be a board director or a superintendent in regular times. And like I said, they can't even meet in person right now. So yep. it's also like, you know, when, my, when my bosses don't no longer believe in what I'm doing or how I'm doing it, I don't want that to add to the distraction. Mm -hmm. um, it's healthier for the organization if the board finds someone that they can work with. And so I'm hoping that they have found that person in the interim and and that their process leads to somebody who can stick around for a while and lead this district. I think, you know, when we look at at some point, there needs to be longevity in the superintendent position that spans over several boards. And so hopefully that person may be the next one. Mm -hmm. Yep. And that's certainly, you know, something we hope for, for the sake of our kids as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Steady leadership and good yeah. relationships behind it. So thank no, it you. matters. It matters. So thanks for your candor on that. So Superintendent Juno, of the 200 largest school districts in the country, Seattle has the fifth largest achievement gap between white and black students. You focused your five-year strategic plan on this exact problem. It's all about students who are, quote, furthest from educational justice, mm -hmm. beginning with black boys. So first, can you tell us why you believe that particular focus on, on black boys um, is so important to building a district where all our kids have a solid shot at success? Yeah, sure. Let me first say that, you know, this strategic plan was built with community. And, you know, when I started this job, I did a huge listen and learn tour to get to know Seattle, to get to know the district, to get to know the people, staff. I made so many stops and talked to so many people. And then all that information fed into a committee. And the committee really was built in community. And the community is really the ones that those community members really put um, this strong emphasis on. And so I, uh, you know, I, I am super proud of that work. I mean, like you said, it is steeped in racial equity, focusing on students of color for this from educational justice, has that intentional focus on African-American boys and teens. And that really came is a lesson that we learned um, called targeted universalism. And it does say that if you focus in on a particular thing, like for example, the example that's often used is the curb cuts and sidewalks built for um, wheelchairs built, but it, mm, it those are the ramps that come right. So, so on, the, on the curb where there's the curb cut, it allows mobility. Yep. But it also helps with strollers and it helps with bikes and it helps like it helps everybody. And so that's the idea, even just that targeted universalism. Like if we really rebuild a system around African-American boys and teens and listen to black community and listen to the voices of our young kings in the system and make those structural changes, that will benefit everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that's really the idea behind Seattle Excellence of what, that's what we call our strategic plan. And it has been able to spread across the system. I mean, there, it's been years, right? So there's been a progress over the past few years of, of building up to this point mm -hmm. um, and getting really real about how are we highlighting black excellence in our system and what are we doing around all this? And then, you know, being able to work with philanthropy and they stepped up in a big way to really assist us with this vision and the creation of off the, our office of African-American male achievement, which is based on 
program in Oakland, California. Right. Yeah. Yep. So yeah, we've learned a lot from Oakland and their efforts with their office down there. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, they are embarking on their own listen and learn tour. They are working with young men in our system, young kings. They have a student leadership council that, and those members are on a lot of our decision-making bodies and advisory groups. And so really just sort of trying to engage and making sure that we keep them at the center of everything that we're doing and all the decision-making that, that we have. And so it's been pretty phenomenal to watch the growth of these young men really speak up and speak truth to power in spaces that are super important to how they experience school. So on that point, you, you've launched programs. You mentioned the Office of African-American Male Achievement. Um, you've stepped up diverse hiring and mm -hmm. a reading program to boost mm -hmm. reader level for third grade boys. Mm -hmm. You've launched programs to move us forward on equity. Some have defended your work. The local double NAACP and mm -hmm. others criticize you for not moving fast mm -hmm. enough calling for your ouster in the fall. Um, your successor will face a lot of the same pressures. Mm -hmm. How do you think that your successor should balance the urgency of game-changing, eye-opening social movements with what you understand to be the realities of making reforms in our school district? Mm -hmm. And I think maybe communicating early about the work that is planned so that they understand the timelines, right? It's like, this takes time. We are not here because things happened overnight. Um, we are here based on a long legacy and history of racism in our system. And undoing those legacies of racism is going to take time. But you can also move quickly, like, you know, making sure that we are bringing students into the, to the decision-making groups, making sure that we are working with all of our partners across the city so they understand our urgency. Even taking third grade reading, like we have a third grade reading goal and being able to work with all of our elementary schools and have the, every elementary school now has that as a goal. That did not happen before. Like we have had to build, when I came into this job, we really were a, a system of schools and not a school system and making that shift so that everybody saw their place. Everybody sees their place and how we have to promote that black excellence. and and making sure that we're doing the work that's going to matter. And that includes our partners outside of, of the district as well. Um, and so making sure that everybody has a place. And I just think communicating that early, making sure that they're at the table as well during the planning um, and, and that they are having a say in, in what that looks like is going to be super important. So I have to say, I mean, you, you talked about how you had community as you were planning these reforms and yet, uh, many in the black community said it wasn't fast enough. So yeah. what what is the lesson there? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it is about laying out the timeline, right? This is and making sure that everybody has an understanding of like, these are the things we're going to do. The one thing I will say is that things can still move fast. And so like you talked about diversity of hiring, mm -hmm. our human resources department has done phenomenal work at recruiting teachers of color, central administrators of color, school leaders of color. In fact, I think the school leaders that we hired last year, about 55% maybe were uh, leaders and actually, of color. I'm hearing that our readers would love to hear details. So, so yeah. yeah, please let us know, like what are the yeah. concrete things that right. we can look at? Yeah, and so, so and, and that happened in a year. And so there are things that can happen on a quick basis. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I will just say, getting into a little bit of detail about some of our recruitment was 
we have an Academy for Rising Educators. And that works with some of our paraprofessionals who are in the system, who are mostly people of color. That works with some of our high school students who are eager to become teachers in the future and taking sort of a model of making sure that, you know, I'll just speak for it. It's like, if you're a high school student, you're interested in education, you graduate from Seattle Public Schools, you take advantage of Seattle Promise, right? Which, which you have access to two years of free college at one of the Seattle colleges. We hire you then as a paraprofessional in our system during those two years, so you get more experience. When you graduate, we put you into our career ladder program where we will pay, get your license, and then you come back and teach for us. So that's what I'm saying is that there are these longer term initiatives that are going to pay off dividends in the future, but also some of the recruitment that we've done, like I said, have been able to um, going to historically black colleges and doing recruitment there in Seattle, making sure that people, um, that, that, that our recruitment teams are out in spaces where and we're doing a huge um, campaign, social media campaign, like on Snapchat and such, that is going to uh, to, to help draw more uh, teachers of color into Seattle, just sort of like knowing that this is a place where you can grow. This is a place where we're going to support you. This is a place where we're going to retain you. It's a place that we're going to see you and that our students are asking. The number one thing for my Listen and Learn tour that I heard from students was they wanted to see somebody who looks like them yeah. in the classroom at some point in their career. Yeah. And so that's one thing that's, that's why it's a huge priority and we're making sure. Yeah. So hiring is up, like you said, 78% uh, of district teachers are white and 5% are black mm -hmm. in a district where 15% of the student body is black yeah. um, and students of color make up the majority. So definitely, you know, a long way to go for sure. Um, Rena Mate Walker Burr, a black student, mm -hmm. Um, said she quit your advisory board in part because she felt the district's moves on equity just weren't making tangible difference to the racism that she and others feel. Mm -hmm. So what, what do you say to the students, our, our future leaders, right? Mm -hmm. Wonder if these problems are permanent. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't believe they are permanent. I think that, you know, we, one reason that, you know, I had a student advisory board and one reason we have the student leadership council through the office of African-American male achievement is to make sure that we are at least attempting to put students at the center of our decision-making, to listen to their voices and to make change. And, and I know as a young person that change um, is never fast enough. And, but to also know that we are putting structural changes based on their input into place. It's why we have the priority of recruiting and retaining teachers of color. Like I said, it, that came from young people over and over and over again. And so making sure that we are prioritizing those things that they want to see happen in our system. Um, but things, you know, as, as we know, things take a little longer when you're trying to work within a bureaucratic organization, um, which is also why going back to the longevity of leadership, why that's important because mm -hmm. anytime you have a shift, there's learning that has to take place, new things that have to happen. And so just a lot of movement that that sort of gets stymied in those transitions as well. So thank you for that. We're gonna move on to our reader questions. And first I wanna ask a question that reader Tiara Jewell sent. So she asked, what are the toughest problems we have to solve as a city to support our public schools? I think it really is, I mean, all working together, right? 
Like we need to find ways that are common and collaborative that we can all come together. And like I said, it took a crisis, a pandemic to really, you know, things did move quickly as far as making sure we were getting um, devices out to students, for example, that people came together, they saw that need. People came together to make sure that we had, you know, a great nutrition services program that was out, you know, Amazon came along, they're making deliveries to homes of our food, right? Um, and so I do think it is building on those partnerships and just working with the district to see what needs are there. Listening, you know, listening is sometimes a two-way street where we are out in community listening to needs um, and how we need to change our structure. But, you know, the partnerships that we make, one of the great things I think that has happened over the last couple of years, and I'll just go back again to the Office of African-American Male Achievement, was philanthropy actually sat with us and asked us what we needed. What do we need in order to make the structural changes to get after our strategic plan and make sure that we're implementing it in a very real way? So we talked about the lessons from Oakland and what happened with their office down there. And then they stepped up and funded it, you know, rather than a funder coming in and saying, here's what you need to do. Right. Here's right. a change that we need to say. Also, the district needs to have a voice in, in what that change is because there's a lot of people here that are awesome with a lot of knowledge and tons of expertise and so much experience that can come to bear about what, how, how, how do we make those changes and where can those partnerships come in alongside of us. So we've got several reader questions, some really good ones. So maybe we should treat this a bit bit more like a lightning round, um, okay. see how many we can get to and make sure we uh, we hear from a lot of our readers. So many parents are asking about more detail or why there isn't more detail about the date-specific timeline for bringing our older kids back, second through 12th grade. So after March 1st, you know, what what is the timeline we can hope for? How long before we know? You know, one thing I'll say is I've, you know, what I've heard from school leaders, at least from the middle school and high school, is that they would like some spaces or even after school of some sort of in-person coming together. Maybe it's tutoring, maybe it's some sort of gathering. There's a lot to be worked out with the union. I mean, that's really where when working conditions change for different groups of teachers, we have to go to the table. And so, so is the you know, time really dependent largely on that group? Or is that what you're saying? I, I, I think it's dependent both on the how we're, a, a lot of it is with staffing. Like it's not just the union negotiations, it's the number of staff that we have. It's the social distancing that has to be put into place in schools. I mean, we at some point we run out of space to bring back the numbers of students that may want to return. And so that's really looking to the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're still in hybrid, which, you know, could be likely depending on vaccination rollout and everything else that is outside of our control. Those are the types of issues that we'll have to look at. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, looking at the my priority is to get the special education students with in intensive pathways back into school. K-1 hopefully follows soon after that pre-K-1 mm -hmm. and then we can start looking at second through 12, but it might be a while. Yeah, I mean, is there a chance it would happen this school year? I, you know, the way it's looking, it's, it, I, I'm not sure it's likely. Viewer Natalia Yudkovsky asks, is district leadership engaging with communities about remote learning and how to improve it? It's a great question. Many families are choosing to remain remote and there will likely be remote learning in the fall. 
There are many things that aren't working for families. What specific improvements to remote learning are you looking at? Yeah, so the board actually asked us to create a remote learning task force, and that is made up of community members and parents and educators. And so they've actually been meeting and talking about what does remote learning look like. We sent out a survey, it's been a while, um, just to gauge students and how they're doing, to engage families and how they're feeling about things. So that task force is kind of looking at all the information. They're looking at attendance data. They're looking at all kinds of different information points to help define, to help us become better in the moment, Mm -hmm. but also looking forward because she's right. There will be some aspect of remote learning in the future as well. And so how do we get better at it? And that can be everything from our learning platform teams, right? We're now moving into teams education, which will be a little friendlier for an education environment. And so tools, professional development, engagement kinds of things. Like I said, social emotional learning, how are we making sure that we're this medium sort of allows us the opportunities for real instruction. Mm-hmm. State laws provide exemptions for people who don't wish to be vaccinated. Will a COVID-19 vaccine be requested of students to gain entry to in-person school in the fall? You know, we'll probably follow whatever the Department of Health does on that issue. And so that's yet to be determined. So this one comes from Maria Gutierrez. Are there any plans for outdoor in-person high school graduations this June? I know a lot of high school seniors are crossing their fingers for something. Yeah, you know, we had to, that's, it's so hard. It's so hard, I know, for families and students to be in this remote setting, particularly all those high school sorts of um, rites of passage that happen, proms, dances, homecoming, graduation. We, as you all know, had to have virtual graduations last year. It depends. I mean, it's going to be hard. We're working with our school leaders, our high school school leaders. And so we'll have more conversation with them. You know, I'm not sure, given where we are in the phases of reopening, that, you know, I think we need to start with that we will probably having virtual graduations unless there is a way that we can be in person. So, yeah. A question from Nicholas Miriam. As you have chosen to not pursue a contract extension as superintendent, he says, I'm curious the advice you have for the incoming interim or future superintendent. Yes, I imagine it may be hard on our schools, students, teachers, and communities having a leadership change in the pandemic. No kidding, Nicholas. Yeah, so the interim superintendent who is on slate for discussion and potential hiring, Brent Jones, Dr. Jones, is not a stranger to Seattle Public Schools. And he, you know, I worked with him when I became superintendent. He was here as my chief of equity engagement and partnerships. And so he's been around Seattle Public Schools. He's from Seattle. And so I think, you know, using his partnerships and his ties and from the support of the school board and looking towards the next superintendent and building out that process is going to do a fine job. Question from CJ, can you confirm that all students will have access to an online learning option as long as they feel that it is appropriate for their family even beyond September 2021? I can't guarantee that. I guess what I can say is that for this rest of this year, if you express that you want to stay remote, you can stay remote. And as I said, looking forward to the fall, if we're in a hybrid opportunity, there is going to have to be some sort of remote option as well. 
So we'll see how it plays out. And I, like I said, I think the remote learning task force will help with that. Our board is going to start looking at what does the fall look like? So they'll be starting those conversations really soon as well, providing some sort of framework and guidelines and a new resolution sort of directing us how they would like the fall to look. And so the, those conversations are upcoming. Mm -hmm. So this is a question just from me going, going back to um, your successor and the future of the district. You know, let's say that your successor picks up the phone and calls you and just says, mm -hmm. what is... What is your candid advice for me? Um, you know, we've got a revolving door of superintendents. We've got a pandemic. We've got lessons that hopefully we, we don't want to leave and follow you out the door. We want some mm -hmm. of the knowledge of crisis management and all this change to stay with the district and benefit our kids. What would you tell that person? What are your big lessons? Yeah, I mean, my big lessons is develop a strong relationship with your board directors. Uh, another lesson is like we have... I think understanding that the people here at Seattle Public Schools are working their butts off every day. Mm -hmm. And they, like I said, they have rich experience. They stick around Seattle Public Schools. So, you know, they, they, they are passionate about the work they do. They are committed. They are super smart and brilliant and really lifting them up. I think that's really been a big part of my leadership of really being able to build a strong team that believes in black excellence, mm -hmm. that believes that we can do the work of undoing the legacies of racism in Seattle public schools, that puts the work in on a daily basis to make sure that our, our systems are operating as best they can and then looking for ways to improve it. And finding, you know, my, my advice is always to get smart people surrounding you, set the vision, and let them loose and try to find ways to remove the barriers they have to their work. And so that would continue to be my advice. All right. Well, with that, Superintendent Juno cannot thank you enough for talking with us today. We definitely, I mean, it's been quite a year, <laughs> a lot of challenges. And, um, you know, yeah, I really hope that we just keep getting stronger as a district, that we keep serving our kids better and better. Um, and because that's really all that's yeah. the best we can do. That's what we've got to try to do. I just thank everybody for their patience. Like I said, this has not been an easy year. And I know frustrations and anxiety is super, super high because at the end of the day, families are sending their most precious resource that they have to us. Um, and we realize and, and understand the weightiness of that responsibility. And we feel that every day. So just appreciate the patience and, and know that we'll get through this. Yep. So we're pulling for all our teachers, all our educators out there. You know, thanks for all the work you've been doing and thanks everyone. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Denise Juneau for sitting down with Monica and answering some good, tough questions. And thanks also to the audience members for their questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, including the CrossCut Festival, which is coming in May, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Resty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Donna Blankenship provided research assistance, and Ann Krisnovich and Mo Klaub oversaw audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.